Welcome to the Christians Caring for Creation podcast. C3 challenges Christians to act boldly in loving God and neighbor by loving all God's creation, affirming that being a disciple of Jesus includes loving everything God made. Your host is C3 founder and CEO, Don Gordon. Good afternoon and welcome to our podcast for C3 with Norman Wiersba. Norman is the Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Christian Theology at Duke Divinity School and the Senior Fellow at Kenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. Also, Norman has been a consulting theologian for C3, Christians Caring for Creation, uh, since our inception, and he has been one of our uh, speakers in past conferences. So welcome, Norman. Glad you're here. Good to be with you, Don. This podcast, Norman, is going to be about one of your recent books, Agrarian Spirit, Cultivating Faith, Community, and the Land, which was published by Notre Dame Press, and this was just published last year. So it's one of your newer books, and I have recently uh, gotten a copy of this book and have read it and underlined it and, and will be able to use it again and again. And so my first question for you about the book is, tell us, what is the agrarian spirit? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in those two words, because on the one hand, I think when when Christians think about spirituality, they tend to think about people removing themselves from daily life, the affairs of, you know, work and so forth, so that you can have this contemplative experience. And the contemplative experience can sometimes be fairly cognitive in its uh, dimensions. So it's about thinking heady thoughts and so forth. And and what I wanted to suggest is that spirituality, if it's modeled on the life of Jesus, is not about releasing or de- sort of removing yourself from the day-to-day life, but also putting you into the heart of that life in a new kind of way. And this new kind of way, I'm suggesting, is an agrarian way And by agrarian, I need to be clear right from the start. I don't mean just farmers. By an agrarian, I mean somebody who cares about the health of land and people and creatures together. But I say the God of Scripture is an agrarian God because from the very beginning, we have a story, a picture of God as the one who cares about creation, all the creatures, and then human beings within all of it. Right, right. Well, I think of that first story in Genesis where um, God has created this garden and um, has placed Adam and Eve in the garden to take care of the garden. So, you know, that really is the first vocation of humanity. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think sometimes, you know, major theologians actually have said this was sort of a mythical context, but it's absolutely true theologically, but also physiologically because everything a human being needs to live, right, fundamentally depends upon the ground, literally, the soil, the water, the plants, the photosynthetic activity. All of that needs to be in place. Otherwise, there is no human life, which is why the story makes perfect sense when it says that God sculpts the human being out of soil. And then it makes perfect sense, too, for God to say, You are a soil-birthed, soil-bound, soil-dependent creature. You now need to take care of the soil, because if you don't, you're going to suffer, right? And the, the, the point of taking care of this garden is not as a punishment, which is the way it sometimes is characterized. No, taking care of the garden 
is actually an invitation by God to participate in God's own way of gardening, which is God's way of taking care of creatures. And as we learn to take care of creatures, right, we're participating in God's vision for what life should be. As I was reading your book, The Agrarian Spirit, I sort of had this feeling that it was, I was reading the church fathers. And for those who may not be familiar with that term, the church fathers are those theologians and pastors and key leaders in the early church, probably in the first 300, maybe 400 years, but the early church leaders. And so as I was reading this, it really took me back to the church fathers. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, do you feel any connection with the church fathers? And is was that a part of this book um, subliminally or in some yeah. way? Well, I mean, also just explicitly, because I think what, what I was trying to suggest is, first of all, you know, this agrarian spirit that I'm talking about is not something you concoct out of thin air. It just comes out of your reading of Scripture, right? Scripture is constantly revealing a God to us who is near to people, near to their land, right? So that when the land languishes, God is very, very unhappy. It's not just when the poor and the widows and the orphans don't have something to eat. It's when the land languishes, the prophets say, that God gets very upset. So it's all rooted in Scripture. And what these early church mothers and fathers did in their very approach to theological reflection and writing is they're constantly commenting on Scripture, So it makes perfect sense that these early church writers would simply be talking about human life in its diverse embodied expressions. And that's why I find that they're so helpful, right? It's not until much later in the history of Christianity that you get this idea that the Christian faith is primarily a cognitive affair, right? It's all about the word. It's all about preaching. And I'm not opposed to words or preaching, But I am saying that if you don't pay attention to bodies, which is what we see Jesus doing all the time, you're going to have a spirituality which is often disembodied and highly ethereal. And I'm trying to counteract that version of spirituality. Yeah. Uh, One other thing about sort of the, the whole landscape of the book is as I was reading the book, uh, I got this sense that there was, it, it was very broad in its scope. It's a book of philosophy. It's a book of political and economic critique. Um, and also at the same time, it's a book, it's a Christian devotional book. It's a Christian devotional literature. So it's all of those in one. And so I was going to ask you, was that your intention or did it just fall out that way? Uh, well, I mean, I, it'd be nice if I could say it was all intentional. I mean, sometimes when you write a book, you don't know all of how it's going to be received by other people. But I think part of the reason there's this expansive character to the book is that I'm trying to move away from a highly individualistic and highly private and not just cognitive faith. And that means as soon as you talk about bodies, embodiment, our embodied dependence upon land, upon fellow creatures, upon other people, you simply have to talk about ecology, you have to talk about agriculture, you have to talk about food systems, healthcare, you have to talk about political forms that, you know, open up certain ways of being with each other. And so once you turn to bodies, you have to turn to the world. And that means you have to bring in all of the forms of analyses 
that enable us to make sense of the world, that give us tools for thinking about, you know, is this a good economy in which creatures can flourish together, or isn't it, right? That's a very basic question that we have to have in view if the care of bodies is our primary concern, which I think it needs to be, because that's what Jesus reflects in his own ministries. Right. You make a a reference again and again throughout the book to a mistake that Christian communities make. And you've already referenced this to some degree, but I'm going to ask about it more explicitly here. But this mistake that Christian communities make, namely that heavenly bliss is not something for this life. It's only for the life to come. And this idea that you know, the bliss of heaven, the wonders of right. heaven is only for the future and not for the present. So how does that mistake, how does this undermine our stewardship of the earth and the total life that we have as disciples of Jesus Christ? Right. Yeah, no, it's a hugely important question. And, you know, there's just so much, not just theological, but just basic conceptual confusion at work here. So the way I like to characterize it is that a lot of people think about heaven as you're being transported to some place far beyond the blue to be with God forever after you die, right? That That's a vision that is much in the popular imagination of people, including Christians. And what that way of speaking confuses is that heaven is not about transportation. It's about transformation. And here's why. If you simply transport people who are not transformed first, they're going to bring all their bad habits to the next life and they'll just ruin wherever they end up being, right? This is something that we see already in scripture, right? Human beings are created. They're placed in the Garden of Eden, which translates as the Garden of Paradise. And what do we do? We end up banishing ourselves because we haven't learned to take care of each other, take care of the ground. So the first rule is that if you're going to have life with God, you have to be transformed by his loving ways of being with others, of being in places. And so the question about heaven is not about can you go somewhere else? It's about how can you be transformed here and now so that the life you have is one that is empowered, inspired, always only by the love of God, right? Remember, Jesus's preaching is not about, hey, wait until you die and then it'll be okay, right? Jesus doesn't ever say that. When Jesus finds somebody hungry, he feeds them. When he finds somebody sick, he heals them. When he finds somebody lonely, he brings them into friendship. When they are under a demon, he exercises them because Jesus is committed to the healing, the feeding of people right now now, because the kingdom of God has now dawned in the presence of Jesus's embodied ministries. Jesus isn't saying, wait till you die. And then I think the most important sort of summation of this happens in the book of Revelation, where you have a vision not of souls, individual souls escaping to be with God somewhere else, but you have a vision of the heavenly city descending to earth because the home of God is among mortals. And what kind of city is it? It's a city with a river, with the tree of life, for the healing and feeding of all the nations. Right. I don't know that the average layperson in a church knows or thinks about this very much, but certainly there are philosophical underpinnings that 
form our faith more than we think they do. And I think sort of what one thing that you pointed out that other theologians and um, biblical scholars are pointing out these days, at least in my circles, is this idea of Platonic thought and the, the separation of body and soul, this Greek separation of body and soul, that really is in contrast to a more Hebrew understanding of nephesh and, and all of these being together. Mm-hmm. And you, you point that out. Uh, could you speak a little bit about the ph- philosophical underpinnings of what you're writing about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the story with Plato is a little bit more complicated. And so what I'm sort of doing in the book is using sort of the textbook understanding of Plato, which, you know, has some pretty powerful influence in the history of Western thought and is also, I think, at a very personal level, deeply attractive. And the way to get into this is you have to go to one of Plato's most famous dialogues called the Phaedo, which has Socrates in prison about to die. He's not afraid to die because he says when he dies, his soul will separate from his body and go to this heavenly realm where everything is perfect and there is no embodiment at all. And this is because Socrates has said in an earlier dialogue that the body is the source of perpetual pain and trouble. I think most of our listeners will agree that bodies are exactly that, right? When you're young, yeah, bodies are pretty good because you're healthy, you're mobile, you can do all kinds of really good stuff. But when you get older, it doesn't work out that way. And when you go any time at all in a nursing home or you go into a, a prison or, or so many places in our world, when you see people's bodies being the source of anguish, right? Or think about just in our day-to-day lives, how many people find themselves in a situation where their bodies are being shamed Being in a body is rough, right? And so we are inclined to agree with Socrates that bodies are the source of pain and trouble. So when we die, we can't wait to be rid of them. But of course, you can't say that as a Christian. And the reason you can't is because God creates bodies good. And you see that throughout Scripture, God is constantly attending to bodies, right? Jesus is telling us that your body is a temple, right? And a temple, remember, is the place where God dwells. So God loves bodies. So we shouldn't ever despise them. Instead, we should try to come along with Jesus and bring comfort and feeding and healing and friendship to bodies. And the kicker, of course, is that It's stated so clearly in the Apostles' Creed where we learn not to believe in the immortality of the soul. That would be Socrates. Instead, we're taught to believe the resurrection of the body. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the mechanics of that are. I have no idea what a resurrected body looks like other than to say it's a body. Mm -hmm. It's material. And it's a body that Paul says, for instance, is wholly empowered by the love of God. But however we describe it, the point is to say that we shouldn't ever denigrate bodies. Now, Socrates is one of the most famous and influential expressions of this dualism, but it happens over and over again in philosophy. I mean, another one would be Descartes, who simply separated human beings into thinking stuff and material stuff. And the material stuff, you can do with whatever you want. 
because it doesn't matter. It doesn't have any value. It's the thinking stuff that matters. So that's another version that you could sort of unpack to, to come to very similar conclusions. Right. Well, you know, I, the story is that Descartes used to lie in bed all morning and think. And, uh, and of course, he was the one who came up with the idea, I think, therefore I am. And I can just imagine his wife saying, get out of bed. You need to do something besides thinking today. Yeah, yeah. You know? So anyway, um, now, in some senses, this book is also about spiritual formation, drawing us closer to God. And, and you make the point, especially in the chapter, Placing the Soul, um, that we have too often tried to escape the world to do this rather than embrace the world. And, and, and you've talked about this embracing land and trees and rocks and mm-hmm. rivers and creatures. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what you meant about placing the soul. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I wanted to get at this problem of dualism, right, that we separate soul and body and think that the soul is the important part and the body is not. Right. So I wanted to get at that and say that's just wrong. But then I wanted to do something that's a little more sophisticated, which is to say that a human being doesn't simply have a body, it is a body. Now, if you say that the human being is a body, suddenly you are very have a very complicated understanding of what you mean by soul, right? Soul means the power moving a body. So it doesn't mean that it can be separated from a body. It's always sort of connected to the body, animating that body. And the question is then, how does the body get animated? What makes that possible to do? And what are the implications when you start with the understanding that human beings are their bodies? Well, it gets very, very interesting quickly. Because the first thing you discover when you pay close attention to a body is that it's not single and it's not autonomous, right? For you to be the body that you are, you have to drink, you have to breathe, you have to eat, you need compassionate touch, right? We all start our lives in a womb, thoroughly connected to a mother. But then you go more deeply into this, as this is something that modern science is teaching us, is that we have what's called this biome of creatures living within us, a biome that consists of hundreds of billions of different microorganisms, so many of them that we could not live without them, in fact, because we depend upon this biome for basic functioning, like digestion, like attacking uh, viruses in our bodies. So the thing is about our bodies, they're complicated, they're not single, they always lead us out into a world, right? And that's what I mean by placing the soul. As I was reading the book, and I've already mentioned this, that it really becomes a book of spiritual formation as well. And you actually give people exercises. You have these chapters on spiritual, you call it, the second half of the book, in fact, is entitled Agrarian Spiritual Exercises. And there are six chapters, learning to pray, learning to see, learning dissent, learning humility, learning generosity, and learning hope. Um, And we can't address all of these, but one of the chapters on prayer, uh, you actually talk about praying without ceasing, that Pauline phrase in 1 Thessalonians, and and you help us to pray without ceasing. And and I get the, the impression that what you're saying is that prayer 
if, if we're going to do what Paul says, pray without ceasing, which seems just impossible, but I get the impression that prayer, what you're suggesting, is a way of reorienting ourselves toward God and our neighbor and the earth. And so how would you help a person learn to pray without ceasing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's some steps that we can follow. And I think the first one is to recognize that praying isn't something that necessarily is obvious or comes easily. Because prayer is this attitude, it's a disposition, it's a way of orienting ourselves to God. That's what we're trying to do when we pray. Now, we don't always know who God is, or we worry about God being absent. So how do you direct yourself outward? That's the first question that you have to have in mind. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to use the Lord's Prayer as a way to help us into this process. It's a very famous prayer. But what I see happening there is that what Jesus is telling people to do is, first of all, recognize that you are not your own life. Because you start by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's already taking you outside of yourself as the center of importance, as the center of significance, and telling you, I need to direct my gaze beyond myself. So I have some stuff that I say about the, po the possibility and also the difficulty of attention, because attention is at the heart of all of this, right? How do we learn to not just be self-absorbed, but actually attend to another? And I think that's the first gesture in prayer. It's about taking you outside of yourself so that you can be responsive to, grateful for, um, helping, caring for a world beyond yourself. So then the next step I say is that we have to have our desires clarified, purified, because when we turn ourselves out to the other, to the land, to God, we discover how easy it is for us to then reduce God to something that we want, to reduce land to something that we want, to reduce others to something that we want. And that's a way of instrumentalizing others. It's a way of instrumentalizing the world. Everything exists to make me happy. And so what I say that the second major part of the prayer is it transforms our desires so that we understand that the desires God wants for us are desires that are directed to the care of others rather than the control of others or the acquisition of others. Because face it, a lot of the time when we pray, we're just asking to control God to give us the world that we want. Mm -hmm. And that's a form of prayer that is deeply idolatrous that the Lord's Prayer is such a, a revolutionary prayer. I, I think that so often we tend to just sort of rotely go through the prayer, but if we really contemplate that and reflect on that and dwell on that, it, it can be really, and it's intended to be a transformative kind of prayer. Right. Um, I see that you interact and engage with Wendell Berry quite a bit in this book. And um, so I was going to ask you, how did Wendell Berry influence your life and your work? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a huge, huge influence in my life because um, he gave me a way to do the philosophical and theological work I do in a completely new way, which is this agrarian way. I grew up farming, but had thought farming days were behind me because coming into, farm, into adulthood in the 1980s is a terrible time to start farming. 
And so I just didn't pay any attention to agriculture once I finished university. And I went off to study theology. I went on to do a PhD in philosophy. And a farmer never showed up anywhere in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, no, no big loss. But what happened is when I moved to Kentucky to teach there, uh, I asked a Kentucky native about which Kentucky writer I should read, because I wanted to get to know a little bit about Kentucky history and culture. And and this person said to me, I think you'd really like reading some Wendell Berry. So I said, what does he write? He said, well, he writes poems, he writes fiction, and he writes essays. So I found some of each mm-hmm. and immediately fell in love with it. And uh, I thought, wow, this is not just about farming or for farmers, but this is actually a comprehensive vision for what a culture can be. Right. And so after reading a bunch of his stuff, I, I wrote him a letter one day and I said, hey, could we meet sometime? I'd love to have a chance to talk with you. And and he was very gracious and welcoming and, and invited me to come out to his place. And we had a wonderful time and we became friends over the next 10 or so years. And, you know, his influence was was super important, not just because of his own work, but because he introduced me to a whole ream of, of other agrarian writers from around the world, across time. And, and what I realized is that we had spent so much time in our academic formation thinking from an urban point of view that this agricultural point of view, this agricultural way of being, which has been the dominant way of being for human beings the last 10,000 years, was completely ignored. And it brought me back to myself because I remember growing up thinking as a farm kid, I think about the world differently than my city friends do. Mm -hmm. But I'd completely forgotten that. And so Wendell gave me my second major education. And he did that by, you know, giving me the tools I needed to figure out what does an agrarian way of being mean for the way we think about major philosophical and theological topics. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered, of course, through him, but also through my friend, Alan Davis, the scriptures are a thoroughly agrarian book. And you can't make sense of the scriptures without this agrarian point of view. And, you know, the implications of that are pretty enormous because so much of our thinking and commentary on scripture does not reflect this agrarian way of being. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to be careful with that influence because, as you know, he became very much the activist and was the kind of person who was ready and willing to get into, as John Lewis um, says it, good trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's been an activist in the state of Kentucky in particular for, for many, many years, not just more recently with mountaintop removal mining, but, you know, with strip mining that was going on already in the 70s. Yeah. And I think he had his books, re- he had his books removed or he had something removed from um, the University of Kentucky, because he felt like they were too connected to the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, he had his papers that were going to go to the University of Kentucky because he taught there for a number of years. Right. Uh, but when the University of Kentucky so it got very friendly with the coal industry, he said that's not going to be the home for these papers any longer, so he pulled them. Right. I loved the story of Don and Marie that you have in your book, in, in the final chapter on, on hope. And uh, could you just give our listeners a synopsis of this story? Because I, I think it's a wonderful story. Uh, you use it as an illustration of hope. 
Right. And so would you give our listeners a, a, a overview of that story? Yeah, no, it's a, it's an amazing story. It, I, I learned it uh, many years ago. I was at a conference uh, in Alberta, my home province in Canada, uh, called the Spirit of the Land. And it was a wonderful meeting. There were all sorts of folks there, academics, indigenous leaders, farmers, activists, you name it, they were there. And uh, we were in a break and this couple came up to me and said, would you have time to sit down over a meal? I'd like to tell you a story. It turned out to be Don and Marie Rizika. And so we did that. And and he said, I need to tell you about what happened in our own farm experience. And he said, you know, we as a family had, you know, bought into the family farming tradition in central Alberta. And what we had was this experience in which we, like so many other farmers, were doing industrial production uh, methods, which meant use of a lot of fertilizer, herbicides, pesticides, right? Plowing up wetlands, bringing down forests, hedgerows, because the aim was to produce as many commodities as possible. And he said this was creating a lot of difficulty, not just financially, because the debt load just grew and grew and grew, but also in terms of his own health, right? The stress of trying to constantly maximize production, increase yield, whatever you had to do. And then just the use of all these poisons was working itself out in his body. And he realized that this just couldn't go on. And so he had to figure out, do I stop farming altogether? Do I keep farming the way that I have been doing it? Or do I figure out a different way to farm? And he decided on the third one, and it happened, you could say providentially, because after this conversation that he and his wife had, Don drove into town, and in his mailbox was a flyer for, for what we might call natural systems agriculture or regenerative ag. And he then took this seminar, and that began a process, a journey, in which over the next few years, they completely transformed their farm, made it a place that brought back native species of, of grasses, of shrubs and trees, but also returned land to wetland conditions that you know improved the riparian wetland zones because a lot of these had been damaged or polluted by these industrial methods of agriculture. And, and Don said the most important thing that he wanted to tell me is that the land can forgive you. Mm. And when he said that, I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean the land forgave you? That sounds overly mystical or whatever you want to call it. And he said it happened like this. He said, one morning I was out moving our chickens, right? They had pasture raised poultry, which means they had these enclosures that they would move across the field and the chickens, they could just peck and roam and so forth within these cages. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they got good, healthy grass and grubs and they fertilized the fields as they moved along. I mean, it was a beautiful system for raising poultry. And he said that while he was doing this, it was early in the morning, um, he heard a meadowlark. Now, Don says the meadowlark is the most beautiful bird song in the prairies in his estimation. He hadn't heard of meadowlark for over 10 years because the insecticides, the herbicides had killed all the insects. So there was no longer a meadowlark to be heard or seen in the prairie where he farmed. But that morning he heard a meadowlark and he thought his mind was playing tricks on him. But then he heard it again and he said that bird song threw him to his knees and he just wept because he said he heard in the meadowlark singing 
the meadowlark saying to him, we forgive you for all the damage you did to this land. Right. Well, it, it was a beautiful story, and, and I think that's a, a, a good place for me to wrap this up. Uh, thinking about, I think what happened with Don and Marie can and would be wonderful if it, if it happened with all of us. If all of us could begin to pray and ask when we are confessing, we, we tend to seek forgiveness and confess our sins to God and our neighbor or our spouse or our children or something like that. And we seek their forgiveness, God's forgiveness and our neighbor's forgiveness. But what we don't do, and I haven't thought about this either, is we, we don't think about seeking forgiveness from the land. And perhaps that needs to be an added component to our prayers and especially our prayers of confession is to include the land in that part of our prayers. Yeah, I think so. And I think obviously Don and Marie are farmers and most people today are not farmers. So there is an urban, even suburban analog to this, which is, you know, don't just seek forgiveness from God or your neighbor, but also what would it mean to seek forgiveness from a neighborhood, right? That can be an urban neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood, a park in a town or whatever, Mm -hmm. because we know that these places are often being damaged. And so to commit to the healing of these places means that we don't just love our neighbors, but we love them more deeply because we're also loving the neighborhoods on which they depend. Right, right. Well, Norman, thank you so much for your time with us at C3 today. I want to commend this book to our listeners. I hope that you'll pick up a copy of Agrarian Spirit, Cultivating Faith, Community, and the Land by Norman Wiersba. It's a great book in in so many ways. And of course, he's written a number of other books that I hope that you can find as well. So Norman, thank you for your time this afternoon. All right. Good to be with you, Don. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. C3 is a global ecumenical Christian organization seeking to connect ecological stewardship of the land with following Jesus. We believe loving God and our neighbors includes loving all creation. We are a community of pastors, scientists, students, farmers, philosophers, theologians, and ordinary Christians trying to serve the common good. You can learn more about us and gain access to some wonderful resources by going to our website at christianscaringforcreation.org. Peace be to you and all God's creation.